Hey, it's Arrow. PodFest brings together three different conversations from musicians, authors, doctors, environmentalists, or cooks in their own kitchen. It's real people with real stories. PodFest 37 features crime author David Harris talking about his book, A City Divided. Then it's Don Wells, Mary Ann from Gilligan's Island, and what it's been like to be a part of that 50-year legacy. Then, legendary musician Glenn Hughes from the group Dead Daisies. This is PodFest 37. We are Unplugged and Totally Uncut with David Harris. I'm well, Arrow. Thanks very much. No, thank you very much for releasing this book, because this is a book of vision. This is a book of experience, and people need to see what it is that moved through you. This is a book that people need to read. Thank you very much, Arrow. I hope they will. Telling the story of one incident in Pittsburgh is a way to tell the story of all of the incidents that keep happening when police and civilians confront each other, and particularly when those are people of color, the danger and sometimes damage that can be done. You know, they, I'm, I'm so glad that, that, you, that you bring it to our hearts. And the reason why is because I, I have um, some friends that go... Is Arrow, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to be pulled over in a car. You don't know what it's like to be in a grocery store and people walk away. And and but a book like this helps me understand so that we don't have to have a division. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. And the book is written not for academics or lawyers, but for regular folks, because that's the task to show people what life is like for people on the other side of it. And it isn't simply that perspective. I tried to also include as much as I could the police perspective so that people can see how these two things clash. Uh, But what we learn the most about here, and we learn it through the stories that are included and the science that is explained, science from the last 20 years from social psychology, uh, is that Americans, and this is white people, this is black people, this is everyone, have very deep and negative stereotypes and other things about young black men that affect how those men are perceived in the world and can pose real danger to them when they are confronted by the police. Yeah, let me give you a little bit of reality from, from North Carolina here just a, a week or so ago, and that is is that those four guys, Caucasian, white men, are walking through Raleigh, they go into a subway, and they have guns, and they've got missile launchers. And it's like, wait a second, if this would have been a group of African Americans, it would have been a completely different story. Oh, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I have to agree with you. Um, you know, we've had that question here in Pittsburgh, where I live. Uh, we had people co- confronted by the police, African-Americans, with a weapon, and the person ends up dead. And yet the man who went into a synagogue here in Pittsburgh killed 11 people. He is somehow apprehended alive, though he is armed, too. And so these questions are consistent across incidents. One of the great lessons of a city divided is that these aren't one-off incidents that happen here, happen there, that they're about a bad apple or something like that. This is a connected series of problems that our society as a whole has to deal with. It isn't about any one police officer or any one individual. You know, one, one of the things that, that just haunts the heck out of me during this this social distancing and, and this coronavirus is the fact, and, th- and this keeps coming up in, in, in the news, and it's like, well, the people that are getting it or get, that are getting it the most are the African Americans and the brown people. Why, wh- why, why do you have to do that? Because what you're doing is that you're creating division. Do you not think so? 
Well, it does create division, but it's also important, I think, to report that. And here's why. What the pandemic is doing is it's exposing and, in many instances, exacerbating existing disadvantages and problems. And I think it's important, actually, to say that, to show people that this is not something that is creating a new problem. It is often exposing difficulties that we have. And there are all kinds of difficulties. One of them is that black and brown people are disadvantaged when it when it comes to health care that's why so many of them are struck are have been stricken so hard by the disease it's pre-existing things that are there because we disadvantage them in terms of their health care in terms of their earning power in terms of where they can live and in terms of how they have to live every day with the tension of racism so when you have a problem like this it 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 can seem to make problems worse to blame victims, but I don't actually think that should be the message. The message is this is exposing existing problems, and if you can't see the inequalities in our society now and want to do something about them, I don't know what would wake you up. The book we're talking about is A City Divided. You are no newcomer to lines being drawn in the sand. Every day you must be just pushing your fingers through your hair going, oh my God, here we go again. Here we go again. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, yes. And if I had any hair left, I'd be pushing my finger through it. I'm telling you, it is. Uh, these are not new problems. You're quite right about that. Um, but what's new about it is the depth of understanding we can have now, particularly over the last 10, 20 years. We've learned a lot from uh, social psychology and other science about how the thinking in the human brain works vis-a-vis race. And those patterns in American society are very, very deeply ingrained, so much so that when a person sees a black person's face, uh, they automatically uh, will mentally reference criminality, guns, weapons, crime, those sorts of things, violence. And uh, you see that across a multitude of studies. This does not mean that black people are more criminally prone. It doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that those cues create that impression due to a lifetime and more of media impressions and all kinds of of relationships that we have. And it tells us that we have to make much more serious efforts to overcome these problems than we have in the past with police and, and communities, of course, but throughout our society. It's not just a problem with policing. It is a problem that is more general. I was with a congressman from, from uh, Missouri uh, a couple weeks ago, and we, we talked about how, how things have changed so dramatically there, and that's the reason why he became the congressman. But I asked him about gun laws and things like that, and he says, Aaron, you got it wrong, buddy. What, what we need to do is change the mindset of people. Do, do you find that that, I mean, it's like, how do you get into the mindset of not just this generation, but what, the past seven generations that have created this moment? Yeah, it, mindset is a huge part of it, and, and mindset is really exposed by a lot of the science I'm talking about. Uh, it, it, it has to do uh, with the mindset around guns, for sure, but the mindset around so many different problems. 
the uh, the us versus them sort of a way that we think about our problems here. That's a particularly difficult problem, the us versus them mindset in policing. Uh, but it's it's uh, more general across our society too. We seem to be more divided than we have ever been. So uh, I I disagree with the congressman's statement in the sense that I do think you have to have action on certain kinds of substantive problems. Uh, gun regulation might be one good example. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can think of others, too. Uh, you know, with Ahmaud Arbery's death in Georgia, why do we need citizens' arrest laws? I mean, there's an example of something that we can take action on. Um, but more than that, we need to start thinking and understanding that we are all connected, that we are all the same in the most basic ways. We need to understand that people who look uh, different than we are, whether it's their age, their demographic group, their racial, their ethnic group, that we share all of the same characteristics and desires, and we need to know people who are not like us. That will break our mindsets down and bring us to a better place. That's one of the chief recommendations in A City Divided, to have more interaction between people uh, who are unlike us, whether we're a police officer uh, and have to seek out others or serve others who are not like us, or civilians. It, it goes for everybody. You bring up a mod down in Georgia, and you're also talking about interaction. Um, there, I, People are making a lot of noise down there saying that the, the gentleman who took that video and kept, on to the, kept a hold of that video for a long time needs to be arrested as well. But where does that put us in a position like that? Well, you know, that's a really important question, whether that gentleman who took the video needs to be arrested. There's evidence... I don't know if there's enough evidence, but evidence that he may have been some kind of participant in chasing Ahmad down. Why was he out there and blocking his way like that and pursuing him in a vehicle? Uh, we need to know more about that before that judgment is made, but it's a question that's legitimately on the table. Um, what we need to see from this situation with Ahmad is that simply seeing a person, particularly a young person of color, uh, you're going to uh, 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 you're going to react like these two men did, the two men who were involved with the guns, and presume that person is a criminal. Um, that's dangerous. That is the, the, the path down which the law shouldn't allow people to go. But more than that, that we should be aware that this is uh, not the right way to think about people. If you have a problem with somebody in your neighborhood, call the police. Uh, don't go trying to solve it yourself because it's too easy to jump to these kind of conclusions. We see this on you know, message boards uh, across the country. A suspicious person in the area, what was suspicious about him? You know, uh, inevitably it's, well, he didn't belong there. Why not? Well, we don't have any black people in this neighborhood. <laughs> and that's the kind of thinking, I think, that gets us into trouble. You, you become a teacher inside this book. It's, it's, but at the same time, you're very compassionate in the, in the way of saying, look, I, I understand all sides of the story here, but we as a community have got to be less divided. And the only way to do this is to create conversation. And that's what this book does. It creates conversation. Well, I, I cannot thank you enough for what you just said. That is exactly my aim. I mean, I wanted to bring the story of this young man and the three police officers front and center to show how these 
very deep misunderstandings can lead to real danger and and uh, and sometimes tragically loss of life. Thankfully, this young man did not die, but many people do in these situations. And it's important for people to understand why this is happening. Uh, we can dissect all day long and maybe come to conclusions about what happened. That's what the legal system does. But why is the question. And when we get to why, we can work past the problem by finding, okay, well, what can we do to deal with that? Um, uh, and compassion is part of it. We have to understand each other, have compassion for each other. Only then can we have a chance of connecting these incidents, saying, no, we don't want to live this way. We don't want our fellow citizens to live this way. We've got to do better. The book is A City Divided. Um, are we going to start seeing you on news programs like Live PD? Are we going to start, you, you're going to get your own television show? Because you can't just sit on this and not have the knowledge that you've got that you're putting inside books right now. Well, like my, my late father used to say, from your mouth to God's ear. <laughs> um, I, I am a born teacher. Uh, I live to explain things to people and to take them apart and, and, and show people where I think reality really is because it's too easy to get lost in, in, in the deluge of facts and misinformation out there. We have to start seeing the picture for what it is, and that is we are all human beings. We all need to be together on this because it's in nobody's interest for these things to keep happening. You know, you bring up my favorite word, which is which is teacher. I, I would love to see a teacher bring this book to their class and they set it down and they say, OK, we're going to spend the next six months to the rest of the year and we're going to study this book and we're going to talk openly about this book. And we're going to see how we are all going to change as a group and not just as a one on one reader. Well, I'll tell you what, anybody who wants to do that with their class, and I don't care what level it's at, from grade school to high school, through college and into professional school, I'm with them. I'll do it uh, virtually, digitally. Um, I'll, I'll teach it. I'll be part of a discussion. Uh, you can find me through the University of Pittsburgh, D.A. Harris at Pitt, P-I-T-T dot E-D-U, and I'll be part of that. I want people to discuss this. I want them to read it, obviously, but I want them to engage, and I'm happy to engage with them uh, because it's only through doing that that we'll make this kind of progress, that we'll see that this was not one bad incident in Pittsburgh, but it, it, it is connected to things happening across the country. The book we're talking about, A City Divided, here we go. We're almost into the summer months. That means the temperatures are going up. People are not making money right now. That means the temperature is really going up. What do you think our streets are going to be like, not just in your city, but like you're saying, every city across the country? We, It's going to be a rough summer, isn't it? I think we're in for some very interesting times, as they say in the old proverb, and not interesting in necessarily a good sense. We've seen a downtick in crime in many cities, not in all, not in all. There have been upticks in a few, uh, but now with people coming back onto the street and people in a very dire economic straits, it wouldn't be surprising if crime rose in certain places, too. Uh, I hope we don't take permanent lessons from that particular thing. We have to wait until our time becomes a little closer to normal to see if we settle back into the usual patterns of crime. Uh, it's not the time now to uh, resort to the tired, old, failed policies of let's just arrest people and lock them up. For one thing, we know that when we arrest people and lock them up in great numbers, not only does it not help crime go down, 
they'll now get sick, and the prisons and jails are already pandemic hotspots. We don't want that. Um, so we're just going to have to keep ourselves vigilant uh, and understanding and cope with what comes. It's difficult. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. Um, I hope for a better summer than what we're both anticipating it might be. I'm I'm so glad that you gave yourself permission to write this book. I, I just think that this is such a, such a tool, and and I'm just glad the universe moved through you to bring this tool to us because I mean this this is the stuff that we should be talking about, and and you're you're starting it, Mister. You're starting it. Uh, it's my pleasure, and it was my great great privilege to do it. As I started doing this, and it took me some years to get it going, more and more people trusted me with their stories of what had happened to them, and I I began to realize at some point that this was something I had to do. Uh, I was given information. I was given documents. I was given people's confidence. And uh, I had some very difficult personal times through these years as I wrote this book, which, uh, you know, everybody goes through those things, but I lost both my parents. I lost some friends. Uh, and I often got very discouraged with life in general. And I thought about giving up, but I knew that it was my mission uh, that may sound real highfalutin, and I don't mean for it to be, but somebody trusted that I would do this, many people, and it has been uh, a great, great privilege to do it, and I'm grateful that I got the chance. I really am. Not everybody has a chance like this, and I'm very grateful I was able to do that. Well, anytime you want to get the word out, this stage is your stage. You've, you've got a f- backstage pass anytime you want to come on, dude. Oh, it is my pleasure. It has just been great to connect with you. And I'll come anytime you want to talk about these things or anything connected with race, criminal justice, or the law. That's where I live, and I would be grateful to be with you anytime. Thank you so much. You be brilliant today, okay, David? And you the same, my friend. We are unplugged and totally uncut with Don Wells, Marianne from Gilligan's Island. I'm just perfect. How about you? I like that. Perfect. That that in, That's the best atmosphere to be in, isn't it? Exactly. Now, tell me your name again. It's Arrow, as in bow and arrow. I know, but did I see you on television yesterday? Hmm. You know, you never know. I mean, they, I do so many different things doing all these other, you know, it's just crazy. Hopefully, if you did see me, it was in a good, it was in a good way. Well, I, I was just something, and I turned on the television, and they said something about Arrow, and I said, my God, that's a great name. <laughs> I mean, it's the afternoon. So it must have been, obviously, nobody else is named Arrow. <laughs> it's one of those radio things. You know how the acting world really is. You know, we all want to go out there and be somebody different, because there's enough Bob Smiths in the world. That's right, and there weren't many Dawns when I grew up. You know, spe- you know? speaking of that, how, how is it that, that you did get to stay so true to who you were as you were growing up and got into the Hollywood world? Because they always want to bend you and shape you into what they need for the, for the, for the motion pictures and things. Well, I think it, it kind of changed uh, about my era. I, I, I wanted to be a ballerina. I love dance, and my knees dislocate, so I had to stop taking it. So I took a theater class as sort of my extracurriculars, you know, and I went to Stevens College, which is a women's college in Missouri, and uh, my professor said, you're really good at this. You ought to major in it. I went, ha, and never earn a living. Are you kidding? But I did a lot of plays there. So when I graduated, I thought, all right, do I go to New York or do I go to Los Angeles? Well, I don't sing and dance, so I'm not going to New York. And I went to Los Angeles and said, I'll give myself a year. And I moved into the Hollywood Studio Club, which was a hotel for ladies, and, uh, and went and got an agent. And I was a perfect ingenue. I mean, I really was the perfect poor little thing that father left her and all that kind of stuff. But I was well-trained. 
I didn't come in thinking I want to be a movie star. I came in as an actress, and I went to work right away. First audition was 77 cents a strip, and I did four in a row. So once you get the film on you, then they can see what you can do. And I was a perfect type. So I went to work right away, and I'm, I'm very blessed. And, and one of the one of the greatest blessings you ever got was was being a part of Gilligan's Island, which is celebrating its fiftieth anniversary. That was that was just something you took a chance on, or was it one you said, you know what, I'm going out here and I'm going to get this role? No, I just auditioned and they cast me. But you go through you go through so many, you don't know you don't know what Gilligan's Island even is. Yeah. You do maybe five or six auditions a week, and I went and read this character and read that character. And then we, they tested us on camera, and the chemistry was right, too. You know, the chemistry between us all was terrific. And it was a silly show and a fun show, and we had a great time, and it's in 30 languages all over the world. I couldn't have done anything more to be seen, that's for sure. I wanted to go right after Gilligan's Island, I went right back to stage right. and did a couple of, you know, pretty dramatic things because I wanted to keep my craft. But I'm very proud of what we did, and and I can't go anywhere in the world without. Oh my God, Marianne, Marianne. <laughs> well, not, not just stage, but one of the things that's always inspired me about you is the fact that you that you really kind of turned to motivational speaking too, helping other people discover their inner selves. Yes, and I think that's very, very important. I mean, I think everybody's kind of strained today. I think the kids are kind of confused today. My generation wasn't the drugs that we have now. There's drugs now, kind of create a lot more problems than not but i don't think anybody 17 year old really know, needs to know what they want to do unless you're a really good mathematician or a really good ballet dancer it's pretty hard to decide what you want to do and i went i wanted to go to a woman's college because i didn't have any sisters and i went to stevens and i took chemistry and algebra and i i'm very good at math and all of that but i took a theater course because i couldn't take a pe course because of my knees right and I got cast in a play, and the professor said, you're really good at this, you ought to major, and I went, ah, and never earn a living, are you kidding? <laughs> but by the time I finished college, I had done a lot of theater, so I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. And I went to Los Angeles and went to work right away. Your, your, your growth as an actress, there's a, there's a line that, that I read from you, I believe it came from your book, that it says that your journey is failure and learning. That, that's, that's very inspiring to me, because it's like, look, I, I, I'm going to trip, but I'm going to get right back up. Exactly. You don't hit a strike the first time you bowl. You don't hit, hit a home run the first time you play baseball. And why do people think it's just so easy? Uh, everything in, in life that, that's really worth having or doing takes work. And I think, that, I think our youth is losing that. Right. I think they think everything can happen in a minute. And it really can't. How how were you able to handle the? Uh, you know, I know the paparazzi is huge right now, but man, it had to have been just as big back when Gilligan's Island was on. How were you able to keep those people away from you? There wasn't that much of that then. First of all, you're working 14 hours a day. You aren't out doing publicity and stuff. And when you're out going to see a play or something, they're not around like they are today. I mean, we would schedule it. So if they wanted to interview me, there was a time that they could do it. But they don't. And I don't think I was the sex symbol that everybody is today either. I mean, I got a lot of that mail because I was the first short short. But I, but I, don't, I don't think that... I think you gave Marianne some respect. I don't think he would be off color to her or make a pass at her. Right, right. We have some we have something in common. We we have something in common that is a love for elephants. Elephants are my totem animal all the way. What about you? Oh me too, me too, me too. And I, I was just watching something this morning and I thought, I wonder if I could make friends with an elephant. <laughs> I wonder if I worked in a zoo and if I fed him every day, would they come to me and know me? You think they would? I think they would. I, because I, I think that they are smarter than humans. I, I just I just think that they, they know exactly. And the, th- and the thing I love about them is that they're on their own pace. There's no rush. Exactly. 
Exactly. And I went through, I've been to Africa three or four times, wow. and I've ridden a couple of elephants, and there's a gentleness. Yep. You know, do you notice that with really big men? Well, you probably don't because you're a guy. But really big men are more gentle with you than the, than the smaller ones. Yeah. They're, 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 they're conscious of their size. My dad was 6'4", 260 pounds, so I had a big man in the household. <laughs> but I, it, it's interesting, the, the small guys that are trying to make a place in life kind of stand up for themselves, yep. you know? And, and I don't think an elephant has to worry. <laughs> speak, speaking of men, you've, you've always been known as being that one person that women can, can come and talk to about men. I think so. I've got a pretty good, pretty good perspective on men, I think. Yeah. I grew up in Nevada where there's instant divorce and all of that. My mother and father were divorced, but they were best friends. And I never had a bad word from either one of them about either one of them. And, and uh, my mother was like a patrol officer. She knew where I was every single minute. Every single minute. I, I couldn't get away with a thing. Now, my generation didn't have the drugs and stuff that's going on today. But I still had to be home at 12. I had to be home at 12. <laughs> I mean, I think today both parents are working, and I think it's harder for the, to keep track of the family. But I think you, you, in your instinct, how you are raised gives you some moral values. I think drugs ruin it all. You're so absolutely. You're, yeah, you're so you don't, you don't, you don't think so. Good morning, Glenn. How are you doing today? Fine, how are you Absolutely fantastic. I, I, I got to tell you right from the very beginning here, this video to this song has got to be the most creative video since Thriller from Michael Jackson. Oh my God, which one's that? The, the, the video for uh, uh, Like No Other. I mean, it, it's like a documentary. It's like a movie. I mean, it, it, just, it just pulled me in all the way through. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It, it it gave me the opportunity to catch up with with a band that that I have been following now for for many years, and it's just amazing what you guys can do on those instruments. Well, you know, uh, thank you so much. We love we love what we do. Really happy to tell you that. The way that you guys brought rock to, together on this particular album, did, did you get to be in the studio together face-to-face? -face? Because, I mean, it is so tight. It sounds so incredible. Yeah, we, we, we wrote, uh, wrote the songs in the summer of 2019. Uh, over the next couple of months, we were preparing to record them. In, in, in France, we went to the south of France to a, 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 a chateau called La Fabrique, which held a studio inside, and we recorded all of those songs you heard on Holy Ground pre-pandemic, so it was a, a miraculous event. One of, one of the things that, that seems to be missing from radio is some great brand new rock. What, what do you guys do to reach out there and push it out there further? Do you, do you put the concentration on Spotify and you let the streaming services do it? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we're all about that, you know. Again, the songs that I brought in, I, I, I saw these songs as live material. When I write music these days, I want to make sure we can take it to the stage, you know. So that was my primary purpose, to, to get an album that would be ready and primed for stage. The song My Fate is one of those songs, isn't it? Because, I mean, it seems like that, you know, fans have always, always called that one of their favorites. Yeah, I mean, that's the song that's really ticking the boxes, so um, the songs we're playing live from the album are really working fantastic. We did nine shows, Arrow, in June and July, a, a test run of, of, of shows to see how uh, it would go, and it, it went great. 
has has the fan changed? Because I mean, there for eighteen months, we got up close and personal because of the you know the way that people were doing concerts from their home homes and all that kind of stuff on the on the computer. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, everything I've done in my career has been very live orientated. I'm a live singing bass player. It's what I love to do. So we love. I mean, I can. We can do this without the fans, but I don't want to do that. You know, uh, the virtual stuff is okay. You know, the lockdown sessions, you've seen them all on the Zoom. It's like, oh my God, how many more we got to see? But <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an artist that loves to play in front of the people. Yeah. Well, I, I love what you're going to be doing on this particular tour. You're going to be teaming up with Don Jameson. I mean, this, this is comedy and rock together. They, they've always gone hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, it's a first for me to have, I mean, Don's one of my closest friends. It's a, it's a, it's a great opportunity for us to bring Don out, because Don's hilarious, so it'll be a, a great night for everyone. So now, when, when you go on a tour like this, how, how do you mentally and physically get prepared these days? Because, I mean, it's a completely different world. Every, if I walked into a stadium right now, I'd be freaked out because I want to make sure that everybody there is safe. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's a, I, I, I'm stuttering when I, I'm trying to tell you how I feel about this because it's difficult. As you know, some of our friends, my friends and your friends in, in the rock and roll world are getting sick right now. I've been sick and, and, and continuing to keep getting you know casualties each day. We have to be ultra careful uh, about mingling at the moment. So it's difficult for us to, to do that. But uh, we, we love... We love we love the fan appreciation, let me tell you that. Absolutely. I mean, you guys have always been pro-fan anyway. So now, the, the music that, that you're putting together, I mean, I know that you said that you like to deliver it in a way to where, it's be, you know, where it can be played live. I love the idea that from day one, the band has always been that anthem-esque band. I mean, it's great rock that moves people. Yeah, I mean, that's for me. I mean, the bigger the anthemic song, the better. I mean, it's... Um, we need that in rock music right now. There's anti-rock, there's anti-hero. There's, no, no, no. We we are the opposite. We it's full-on anthem kind of music. It's stadium music. Yeah. Well, we also need that front man like yourself with those vocals and everything like that because we all, you know, everybody, you know, each generation has had their their favorite vocalist. And dude, you're right in there. You you've got you've definitely got that down. Well, I well, thank you, Errol. Um, I. Really grateful that I've been chosen to sing from a higher power to do what I do. You know, um, I'm, I'm extremely grateful that I've been given that gift. Now, when when did you realize that you had a great rock voice? And but I mean, I then again, you know, I mean, at, at home you 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 might be a whistler or a hummer. Hmm. Well, okay. When I first started playing music in the sixties, I was playing. Long before I sang, um, I was a young young kid um, learning to play guitar and then eventually onto the bass. And I was never the lead singer of a band up until eight years later, ten years later, uh, when I became uh, you know eighteen years old. Um, and and um, I was kind of asked to sing because the singer was away on holiday with his parents. And I, one day I'm standing in front of a microphone, I'm singing a song, and I'm going, oh. Well, this is new. <laughs> and, and, you know, and all these years later, you know, we look back at my vocal career and uh, and how 
fortunate I've been to to have become this singer. So I, I'm a, a, extremely grateful. Do you ever have to go through what radio people do through the maturity? The older we get, the, you know, the, it, it changes, and so therefore we have to readjust and everything. Um, people say my voice has gotten better over the years. Um, I think I'm just more wise of, yep. of how to do stuff now. Yep. Especially the, the warming of the, I, I warm my voice up. I take care of my voice. Uh, for me, it's like I have to take care of my my art. So I always you know warm the voice up, warm it down after the show. You know, vocal exercises are very very important. So true, and that's I, I can't even go to sporting events because if I go to a sporting event or someplace that's going to overexert my voice, that that's that that's a job. I'm going to lose out on a voice job. <laughs> I know. I, I hear you. <laughs> One of the most powerful things in this video that we were talking about at the beginning, I love the line that says, "The hard times bring the heroes we meet," and 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 the, the, I really think that that really points out what you, what this tour is going to be all about because the hard times are taking us to you because you guys are the rock gods. Mm. Well, that's nice. I mean, you know, we're all we're all all of us as you know been going through this musicians and fans. This um, 18, 19 months of no music, no live music, and here we are now. Uh, we're one of the first bands to go out and tour globally now um, in, in an uncertain time place to do it, but we are very, very prepared to do this, and we've been rehearsing in New York City for a couple of weeks here and getting ready to do it. Well, I can't wait to catch you live on stage, man, because you guys are that band. Is there a website that fans can go to to find out more about the 20 dates and the concerts and all that kind of stuff? DeadDaisies.com. And, you know, it's also Facebook and Instagram, DeadDaisies, you know, and Twitter. Uh, it's, all, it's everywhere. Spotify and et cetera, et cetera. Well, congratulations and welcome back to the road, sir. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Ari. You're a good man, and good well, morning to you. You be brilliant today, okay, sir? Thank you, sir. Thank you. Have a great day, my friend.